It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Episode 1. Red Robin. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. During Katie Bonesteel's first month as a waitress at the Red Robin restaurant in Latham, New York, she majorly messed up an order. Like she got it, had to call the manager wrong. And it was my, I had just started waitressing and back in 2007, this place was hopping. This was before the recession. I'd gotten the job when I was in college. This place was, there was always a wait to get in. It was newer to the area. I think it had only been here like two years. So it was crazy and um, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So, but I. Is this pretty quiet? Is this quiet enough for you, Jess? Yeah, let's go. I hate to like put you guys in the corner there, but it seems like this is a little bit better. Wendy Libertor and I met Katie Bonesteel at the Red Robin recently to relive the night of her epic screw up. Yeah. It was November 1st, 2007. Katie Bonesteel remembers many of the details. She was 20 then, studying full-time at nearby Siena College. The Red Robin post was a new side gig. Here's how it went down, according to Katie. Around 7.30 on November 1st, a pair of customers were seated in her section. One was a stockyish white man who looked to be in his 30s. He was bald. He had a beard below his neck. The other was a lanky, mixed-race boy with golden skin, blonde hair, and bright green eyes. He looked to be about 12. She says only the man spoke when she took their order. On the other side of the booth, the boy stayed silent. He was like pushed up in the corner. You know, he didn't sit in the center of the booth. He sent, sat pushed up in the corner of the booth and he was quiet the entire time. To Katie Bonesteel, the whole thing felt 
off. Nonetheless, she stuck to her recent training and took their order. Do you remember what they ordered? I feel like there was some appetizers, there was a milkshake or something like that. That's the only thing that I really remember. Whatever it was that they ordered, she brought them the wrong food. The details are hazy. But she recalls that it was enough that the manager on duty needed to step in. Part of their meal ended up being comped. The man seemed annoyed, but remained largely polite, maybe a little condescending. He paid their discounted bill, and then the pair left. It was about 8 p.m., or a little thereafter. A few days later, when she was off duty, Katie Bonesteel got a call from her manager. She had to come to the restaurant immediately. The state police wanted to talk to her. Yeah, I'm like, did I run a red light? Like, I had no idea why the state police wanted to speak with me at work. And when I got there, they said, you know, you served this, um, you know, this man, this, this young boy. And I instantly knew who it was because of, you know, the fact that I had messed up their order, which seems to be written in the stars, I guess, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have remembered them because, you know, you serve so many people. The police wanted to talk to her because she was one of the last people to see that 12-year-old boy before he disappeared. His name was Jalik Rainwalker. More than an hour earlier, on the evening of November 1st, 2007, Jalik Rainwalker was not with the man Katie Bonesteel described from the restaurant. He was with Elaine Person. Jalik had been staying with Elaine and her husband Tom at their house in the Albany suburb of Altamont for the previous six days. Elaine's now in her 70s. She has long gray hair and has some mobility issues, but she and her husband have been foster parents for nearly 40 years. They fostered dozens of children, and they legally adopted seven of them. They also often offered respite care to other foster and adoptive parents. Little spells of relief here and there for whatever reason, and many times specifically for children with behavioral issues. Elaine and Jalique pulled into the parking lot of 1228 Western Avenue in Albany in Elaine's car just before 7 p.m. At the time, it was a Best Western Hotel, just across the busy thoroughfare from the entrance to the University at Albany campus. Elaine was headed to a class at the university that evening and had agreed to drop Jalique off there with his father. We showed up here just before um, 7 o'clock and Jalik said, hey, there's my father's car. So we went over to the van. It was a gold Chrysler town and country van. And his father wasn't in it, but we tried the door and the door was unlocked. So Jalik took all his things and opened the back door and, and put all his things in on the seat. And that's when his father came out of the hotel. Apparently he'd gone in to use the, the bathroom 
His father was the same bald, bearded man Katie Bonesteel would encounter within the hour. His name? Stephen Kerr. He says to Jalik, Jalik, get in the front seat. And, and I didn't think anything of it. And um, they closed the back door. He got in the front seat and they took off and I went into my class. And that was the last time we saw Jalik. During the last week of October of 2007, Elaine and Tom were taking care of Jalik. They were providing respite care for the couple who'd adopted him four years earlier, Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. He had had such a good time um, with us during that week. He was extremely well-behaved. Um, we had gone to um, a haunted attraction at the Altamont Fairgrounds um, the night before with my babysitter's 10-year-old son, and the two of them had a fantastic time. They were extremely well-behaved. Um, we, it wasn't like we did a whole lot of, of things um, during that week he was with us. You know, we mostly just hung out at the house because he wasn't going to school, but he was just ex extremely well behaved in, in terms of, um, you know, his interaction with us and, and with the other boys. That seems like a far cry from the reticent, anxious-looking child that Katie Bonesteel described meeting about an hour later at the Red Robin. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think Katie and Elaine were describing two different children. Ah. Oh, this door, okay, this door, will it not open the door? Oh, okay. 1228 Western Avenue is now an assisted living facility called the Promenade. Wendy and I met Elaine and Tom in the parking lot oh, there. Thank you so much. Elaine sits in the front seat of her van. Oh. All right, I'm just going to turn it down. Just let it give it a yeah. second to cool off. It's 95 degrees out, so Tom blasts the air conditioning. Then he goes out into the heat to let okay. Elaine have a moment alone with us. How does it feel to be back here? I mean, does it bring you back to the moment that you dropped Jalik off and the last time you saw him? Um, yeah, it, it hurts um, because, because there's been no resolution and because it hasn't been solved. It just, yeah, it's a very painful memory. Elaine remembers the fall of 2007 very clearly. She and Tom were fostering three teenagers at the time. In mid-October, she says she got a phone call out of the blue from Jalik's father, Stephen Kerr. She remembered him from a brief meeting they both attended at Parsons Children and Family Center a few years earlier. That's an Albany-based organization that facilitates foster placement and adoption. Stephen and his wife Jocelyn were in the process of adopting a child that Elaine had once watched for a few days for another foster family. That child was Jalik. On the phone, Stephen seemed frantic. He was desperate for someone to take Jalik for respite care. So why did Stephen tell you they were desperate for a respite family? What was going on or what did he tell you was going on? 
He said that um, there were problems with Jalik at the um, home school um, that he had been going to and that he wasn't allowed to be home. Um, at that point, we didn't have details. We just knew that um, he had tried other foster, other um, respite homes and couldn't find anyone to take him. Elaine agreed to help. She didn't ask questions. When a child was in need of care, she and Tom would drop everything to help if they could. So Elaine and Stephen agreed on a plan. She would take Jalik until that Thursday, November 1st. She would drop him off with Stephen that evening for the weekend because she and her husband had plans to go downstate to watch their daughter run the New York City Marathon. Elaine promised to take Jalik back again the following Tuesday. That's November 6th. And we, at that point, we weren't sure for how long, but we, we were very excited about him coming back, and he was very excited about coming back. And that's why when we got the phone message the next day from Stephen Kerr that Julie could run away, it just didn't seem real. The village's main intersection, police show pictures of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker. As a state police helicopter searches for signs of the boy, who was last seen Thursday night at a Greenwich home owned by his grandparents. Jalik is one of five of Stephen Stephen Kerr reported his son, Jalik Rainwalker, missing just before nine the next morning from a relative's house in the small Washington County village of Greenwich. According to Stephen's statement to police, the two had spent the previous night there alone. Stephen says they'd driven there straight from the Red Robin, which was about 35 miles south. He says Jalik went to bed immediately upon arrival, but Stephen stayed up for a little bit and watched a romantic comedy starring Robin Williams. He didn't remember the title. And then, he says, he went to bed too. When he woke up, Jalik was gone. Stephen says he found only a note on the kitchen table. In Jalik's handwriting, it read, Dear everybody, I am sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye, Jalik. In the first few days following the disappearance, Stephen Kerr and his wife, Jocelyn McDonald, were adamant to investigators and to the media, they believed Jalik had run away. And at first, the police appeared to agree with them. Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell told reporters he initially thought Jalik was a typical runaway case. Father checked on him Friday morning and found he'd put something in his bed to make it look like he was still in it. And he knew he was in trouble. He was confronted by his adopted parents about it. Parents say he'd spoken of suicide. But after more than 48 hours, law enforcement was no longer convinced that was the case. The state police got involved. Both law enforcement and volunteers fanned out across the rural county. They combed woods, golf courses, lakes, mountains, and the nearby Battenkill River. They would search for Jalik for days, for weeks, for months, but they found no trace of the boy. 
Meanwhile, his face was plastered across newspapers, television screens, a billboard. His green eyes, golden skin, and radiant smile leapt out of the photos. In the days after Jalik disappeared, Stephen and Jocelyn helped organize two vigils. Jocelyn helped with a search. Stephen put up a handful of flyers advertising a $25,000 reward for info on Jalik's disappearance. He did that in Albany, which is 35 miles from Greenwich. He also did a few interviews with local media. He told reporters at the time that he believed Jalik had run away to live in Albany. If anybody knows what Jalik is, we'd really love any information. Or Jalik, if you're watching this, we'd love to for you to come home and just try to figure this out. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. In the days after Jalik disappeared in November of 2007, Jalik's family told police and the media that the boy had had emotional and behavioral issues. He was prone to angry outbursts, they said. And in the weeks before he disappeared, they said he had threatened a child with physical harm in his homeschool program. Stephen Kerr began to tell news media that he thought Jalik had run away to join a gang in Albany or Troy. I believe deep in my soul that my son Jalik is alive and safe somewhere. But as the investigation continued, police began to question Stephen Kerr's account of the night Jalik disappeared. For Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell, things weren't adding up. He started to express his doubts to reporters. Here he is on Albany's News Channel 13. I certainly don't believe that a 12-year-old, now being 17 irregardless, could just walk away from, from his home and just try to live a normal life out there. Bell claims after Jalik's disappearance, his adoptive mother, Jocelyn McDonald, was cooperative at first. The police asked Stephen and Jocelyn to submit to polygraph tests. Jocelyn did. Stephen refused. He began to make statements to reporters that he was being unfairly targeted by police as somehow being involved in his son's disappearance. I'm not privy to much of the investigation because the police are still working on the assumption, partially, that I did something wrong. Dan Higgins was the Times Union reporter assigned to cover Jalik's disappearance in 2007. He spoke with Stephen Kerr and his family in person a number of times after Jalik went missing. The said that his theory was that Jalik ran away to Albany to, to quote unquote, that's right, be with his people. And 
when I would ask him what evidence he had of that, like his answer was, uh, because every time we went to Albany, he he looked like he wanted to be there or, or, you know, something like that. At a certain point, Higgins, too, began to get the feeling that there was more going on with this missing child case than he initially thought. Then when I learned they were trying to undo the adoption, and then when I learned that uh, Jalik either was violent or they believed he would become more violent toward his family. That's when I learned that this story was uh, uh, very complicated, a lot more complicated than I even thought. Within weeks after Jalik went missing, Stephen and Jocelyn stopped cooperating with police. They stopped giving media interviews. They stopped answering calls. Four months later, Stephen Kerr was named a person of interest in Jalik's disappearance. And almost immediately after that, they moved their family, which included four other children, to West Rupert, Vermont, just across the New York border. The term person of interest carries no legal weight. It simply means that investigators thought Stephen had valuable information that could lead to solving the mystery of what happened to his son. It could also mean, though, that they think he was involved somehow. Stephen Kerr has never been charged with anything in connection to his son's disappearance. But he remains a person of interest to this day. The only person of interest ever named in the case. And he and Jocelyn McDonald have refused to talk about Jalik's disappearance publicly for 15 years. It has been five years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker disappeared. Six and a half years later, police are still getting tips about the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker. It's a 12-year-old boy from Washington County vanished without a trace. That was almost 15 years ago, and Jalik Rainwalker would have turned 27 this month. In the intervening decade and a half, tips continued to flow in. About two months after the disappearance, local media outlets received an anonymous letter. In incomplete sentences, riddled with spelling errors, it began, quote, Jalik still alive. It ended with, quote, don't try to look, we are not there. The veracity of the note was never confirmed, and the search continued. Fields and forests combed with cadaver dogs. A search of the Hudson River in Troy came up dry. Reports of boys who looked a lot like Jalik walking around Albany and the Hudson Valley, each a false alarm. A skull unearthed on the shores of the Hudson River, 60 miles south of Greenwich, proven someone else's remains. The investigation remains very active and has never been considered a cold case. Several individuals have been thoroughly investigated and eliminated via alibi or polygraph examinations. The status of this case, as of this, of this reading, has been changed from a missing person is now considered a probable child homicide. That was Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell at a press conference in December of 2012. 
five years after Jalik went missing. By this time, authorities were now all but certain he was killed. But they did not name a murder suspect. Again, state police are now following new leads on a Capital Region mystery that dates back to 2007. In July of 2022, almost 15 years after Jalik disappeared, state police searched a wooded area in South Troy in connection to the case. Troy is a city along the Hudson, about 30 miles south of Greenwich. Thus far, they have not publicly revealed whether they found anything there. Stephen Kerr did not respond to repeated phone calls, electronic messages, and a certified letter that we sent him, asking him to talk to us for this podcast. His lawyer, Jeffrey McMorris, would not speak to us either. McMorris told us that he couldn't speak without his client's permission, and his client wasn't returning his phone calls. Stephen Kerr, however, still works in Greenwich. People say they see him around town all the time. So we found him there last August. Oh, there's Stephen. Is that Stephen? Yeah, hi. Uh, Wendy Lippertor from the Times Union. I just wanted to talk to you about this story. I was stories I'm doing, and I really want to make sure you have the opportunity to talk about Jalik's disappearance. Do you you want to talk about that, or? Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. Okay. All right. But you're you don't want to talk, basically. Okay. All right. Thank you. I just wanted to make sure. Elaine Person says when she heard Jalik went missing, the events of the previous two weeks replayed over and over in her mind. And one thing kept sticking. It was something Stephen said to her on the phone when he first called looking for respite care for Jalik. He said he couldn't go. He couldn't go. He, he was staying at his father's house and Stephen could not go home to his wife until he got rid of Jalik. Fifteen years later, Elaine still has questions about why Stephen said that to her and what he meant. I have been, you know, after 36 years in foster care, I know that you can give a kid back. You know, all you do is you give up the subsidy, which was $1,500 per kid, and they had two. Reporter Dan Higgins was stuck on this, too. He was deep into the case by late November of 2007. Somehow I learned that Stephen and Jocelyn, at the time of Julie's disappearance, had already contacted an attorney to discuss undoing the adoption. And I believe at the time they referred to it as disrupting the adoption, or there's a, there was another legal term for it. Disruption, I believe, was, was the term that they used. That felt very dramatic. That felt very meaningful. Elaine Person says she doesn't buy the idea that Jalik ran away. He was too young, immature, and unworldly to run away. So have you come to terms that Jalik is probably dead? Yes. 
Yes. I feel that he was killed uh, on November 1st, 2007. Yeah. Jalik's adoptive grandmother, Barbara Reilly, doesn't believe it was possible that Jalik ran away either. Barbara's Jocelyn's mother. Jocelyn and Stephen cut off contact with her in 2008. Barbara Reilly has spent the last 14 years trying to find out what happened to Jalik. She's appeared in countless news stories, her soft-spoken voice pleading for information on her grandson. Barbara really wakes up every morning on the day of a search, thinking she'll soon have answers. As Barbara really looks through pictures of her grandson, a candle sits lit in the window. Every day, that candle has been lit for Jalik. Dan Higgins has moved on from the Times Union. He teaches journalism now at Canisius College in his hometown of Buffalo. But Jalik's disappearance... And some of the things Barbara Reilly and others told him, he's never been able to shake. He spoke to us over Zoom between his classes. Surprisingly soon into Jalik's uh, disappearance, um, she told me that she uh, uh, believed her grandson uh, was dead. And I believe that she kind of, you know, talked around it like she may have used the phrase no longer alive, no longer living. And she also was very clear and very candid in that she believed that Stephen uh, was involved. Let's pause for a moment. We need to note that there will be times in this podcast when people talk about their impressions or beliefs about Stephen Kerr. Whether it's witnesses who knew him or members of the public with no ties to the principal players in this story, it's important to remember that in many cases, these impressions have been filtered through a lens of 15 years. That's 15 years during which Stephen Kerr has been the only person of interest identified by law enforcement. What you heard and will hear in this podcast are impressions. Not necessarily facts that hold up in a court of law. The only actual fact that we have to go on is that Stephen Kerr has never been charged with a crime in connection to Jalik's disappearance. Yeah. All right. Her microphone is sensitive. So, hold on, let me put that on my jacket. <laughs> yeah, okay, there we go. It All is right. a nice sound, though. No, yeah. So, how, what is it like to be back here? Strange. You know, everything feels very unresolved. Fifteen years later, back at the Red Robin in Latham, the memory of crossing paths with Stephen Kerr and Jalik Rainwalker still haunts Katie Bonesteel. Her waitressing days are more than a decade behind her. She's 35 now, and she works for the state. She's a mom of three kids. You know, you get your, your law and order moment in life. Not many people do, and it's not something to be like... You know, it's like, hi, my name's Katie. I was the last person to see a missing child. It's not that, but I don't talk about, I've never talked with most anyone about this. Some of my closest friends don't know. And it's because like, it feels like I, I just, there's so much reverence around the situation. And I don't feel like I can take a breath with respect to the matter until they find him. You know what I mean?
What happened to Jalik on that crisp fall night 15 years ago? Did he run away? Was he killed? If so, who killed him? And what happened to his body? 15 years later, so many questions linger. On the next episode of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, we started our search for answers in the last place Jalik had allegedly been. Greenwich, New York. righteous rage in a very chill way that this has happened in Greenwich. I, I really can't speak for others. Um, there, there's a lot of people, I think, that um, feel that the adoptive father uh, knows more than what he's saying. Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, is a Times Union podcast. This series was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. Special thanks to Dan Higgins. Archival report footage came from local stations CBS 6, News Channel 13, and News 10, and from Find Our Missing. Our theme song is As You Make the Bed by Amos Noah.